If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last Sunday, we began a new series on Christian grieving. And our text for the series is found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. But beyond this text, we also saw two other verses that provide foundation for what we're looking at. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul wrote, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is to say, in all that we do in our lives as God's people, we are to do it all to the glory of God. It is an imperative that we are to embrace and to agree to before we continue in this series. Um, otherwise, I think at difficult points as we talk about grieving, we might be tempted to say, no, that, that, that actually doesn't apply to this particular situation. In everything that we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. And, you know, beyond what we're looking at in this series, in our lives, why do we do anything? What is our reason? What motivates us to do anything? What guides our actions? What guides our thinking? And so it is important, not merely for this series, but for our lives as God's people. Whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, last week, as we began, I laid down some principles, some guidelines for our thinking, and I just want to review them uh, a bit. The first is what it means to be human, the nature of human beings. We are made in the image of God, the Creator, and there are two aspects to our being, the, the physical or the material, and the non-material or that which cannot be seen. That which we perceive by the senses, we take to be material, it's physical, corporeal, it is touchable, it is visible, it's tangible. But we find in Scripture that there's another part of us, non-material or spiritual or invisible. And it is clear, and we saw last week in Scripture, that there are two parts to us as human beings. Then the second thing that we saw last week is the essence of physical death. We find in Scripture that death is something that was imposed on humanity by God because of Adam's disobedience. And physical death is nothing less than the radical separation of these two aspects of what it means to be human the physical and the non-physical, the non-material. These are things that cannot be separated on their own, or we can't separate them on our own. There is, I think, a temptation, and we find in certain, in various false religions, this, this notion that somehow you can separate your spirit from your body. But this is something that happens at death, and it happens because God has put this on us so, as a result of sin. Death is the separation of body and spirit. Now, as to the separation, there are two things that we saw that need to be emphasized. First of all, death is unnatural. It is the result of sin. It isn't just a natural part of life. It's a word that wasn't in my notes so much, but as I was speaking last week, kept coming back to me time and time again, and that is violent. It is a violent and unnatural intrusion into the human experience. It is a, violating, a violent tearing apart of body and soul. I read this quote last week, and I, I want to read it again. 
Contrary to many modern myths about death, that death is a natural part of life, the cessation of existence, that there is a natural dignity in dying well, the Bible paints its portrait of death with the most stark and sobering of colors. Nowhere in the Bible is death treated as something natural, as something that can be easily domesticated or treated as a part of life. No encouragement is given us in the Bible to minimize the terror and fearfulness of death, our last enemy. So it is unnatural. But the second thing we saw is that death is temporary. The separation of the body and the spirit or the soul is in fact temporary. All of history is moving toward a point in which, toward which Jesus will return and restore all things and will bring in the new creation. At that point, all souls and bodies of those who have died will be reunited. And then will come the, the great judgment, the day of judgment. So resurrection will happen not only for believers, but for non-believers as well. So everyone who dies, this is temporary. This is not permanent. This isn't the end of the story. There will come a time when Jesus returns and the bodies and souls will in fact be reunited. So, as we in this series seek to find out what it means to grieve in a way that brings glory to God, since we're to bring, do all things to the glory of God, we need to be clear about these principles. We are made in the image of God. We, are consist, we consist of body and soul, material and non-material. Physical death is the radical, the violent separation of those two aspects. It is, in fact, temporary. It is unnatural. We are not made for death. This experience tears us apart, literally when we die, but emotionally when someone else dies, someone who is very close and dear to us. A couple other things that we saw last week. First of all, our thoughts are to be under our control. The scripture has a lot to say about our minds and our relation to our minds. Simply put, we are responsible for the direction and the focus of our thoughts. <coughs> I think we would like it better if we were not, but we are in fact responsible. And even in the midst of crushing grief that is brought about by the death of a loved one, we are responsible for the direction and focus of our thoughts. So Paul wrote, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is always to be the case. What Paul writes here is not, not applicable if we are in the midst of grief. We can't say, well, I'm sorry, this has been suspended, I'm in a time of grieving right now, therefore I don't have to focus on these things. Um, no, we are always to think on these things. If, in fact, we set this aside, I think it does a couple things. It reduces our capacity to glorify God. We're not doing things to the glory of God. But secondly, I think it deepens our grief. Um, and I think it makes our situations much more difficult. So we are responsible for the things on which we set our minds. We're responsible to direct and to focus our thoughts, even in the midst of great sorrow and grief. Excuse me.
another thing that we saw last Sunday is that our emotions are not to control us. They are not to rule us. We were made with emotions. Emotions are part of what it means to be human. They're not sinful in and of themselves. But as with every other aspect of our being, when Adam and Eve sinned, we all were sort of tainted or corrupted or marred by sin. So as fallen creatures, we feel things we ought not to feel. And as fallen creatures, we feel other things to a degree that we ought not to feel them. But the answer is not get rid of your emotions or suppress your emotions. Otherwise, as we saw last week, how do we explain emotions in the life of Jesus? What we see is that Jesus did not allow his emotions to overcome him. We are not to be stoic, or in the words of Star Trek, to become Vulcans, to somehow suppress our emotions. No. But we are not to allow our emotions to rule over us. Which, as I said last week, is much easier said than done in the midst of grief. Understand this. God created our emotions. But he did not create them to have the ultimate control or authority over us. And when that happens, then we are in the wrong. And the last thing we saw, which leads us into what I want to look at today, the intermediate state is real, but it is temporary. By intermediate, I mean the time between when a person dies and when the Lord Jesus will return. We don't know how long that will be, but it, te- death is temporary, so there is this period of time between death and when Jesus returns. As I said, that's what I want us to consider today. If we die before Jesus returns, before the final resurrection, then we will be in what is called the intermediate state. What does that mean? What is it like? Um, Those whom we have lost, what is it like for them? What do we find in scriptures about this? Mention a couple things today, and the Lord willing, some more next Sunday. First of all, those who are in the intermediate state are endowed with moral perfection. That is, those who have died and are waiting for the time when Jesus will return are morally perfect. They are in a state of moral perfection. Let's ask ourselves, what is God's purpose in history? We have seen in the series on creation that creation is not the end in itself. In fact, it is the beginning point of something that leads to the new creation. The project, though, was derailed by sin. Instead of creation going directly to new creation, it was derailed, put off tracks because of sin. Jesus has come into the world to set things right, to put us back on the track toward the new creation. And what the new creation means for those made in the image of God, that is, for human beings, is demonstrated in the resurrected Jesus. In Romans 8.29, Paul wrote to the Romans, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Just a side note, I find it interesting that we sort of know that verse, but we know the verse before it much better. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's go back to verse 29. What does this mean to be conformed to the image of his son? Among all that this intends is moral perfection, that we will be like the Lord Jesus. We will be sinless. In theological terms, this is glorification, when we will be without sin. It is the completion of God's work in us, a work that he began in us when he saved us. 
And then we are going through the process of sanctification. And then finally, the day will come when we will be glorified. Glorification is the culmination. It is the completion of the work God is doing in us to to transform us into sinless creatures, sinless bodies, sinless souls. So we have two aspects to our being. Those who are alive when Jesus returns will experience this in soul and body at the same time. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. In 1 Corinthians, the chapter, uh, chapter 15 on resurrection, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The change that Paul speaks of is glorification. Again, both of our bodies and of our souls. So again, those who are alive when Jesus returns will experience this at the same time. But what about those who have died before Jesus returns? Those who are in the intermediate state. Remember that death is the tearing apart of body and soul. We know when someone dies, their body is left with us. And that's what we take care of. Either in burial or in cremation, we take care of the body. But what, this, what about the soul? What happens to the soul? I would tell you this. The soul is instantly made perfect. It is instantly glorified. In Hebrews 12, the writer points to the blessings that we have under the new covenant versus those who are under the old covenant. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits, get this, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I emphasize, but I want to call your attention to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Let's back up. Consider what happens when a person comes to a moment when they put their faith in the Lord Jesus. They recognize that they cannot save themselves. They recognize their sinfulness. And they come to Jesus in faith and say, I accept you as my Savior. Well, in the scripture, we're told that that person is justified. That is declared righteous based on the obedience of Jesus, the perfect obedience of Jesus, and upon the death of Jesus on the cross. It's not because of anything we have done in Titus 3, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And we are instantly transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The reign of sin in our lives ends. It ends radically. We are no longer under the reign of sin. And we are now under the reign of God in our lives. But, if we would be honest, even if sin no longer reigns in our lives, it still remains. And there are times when we may despair and think, 
that in fact sin continues to reign in our lives. But no, it, its rule is no longer there. It's, we are now the children of God. But sin still remains. And as the children of God, until we die, we are engaged, or we are to be engaged in the project of putting to death habits, attitudes, dispositions, perspectives, words, deeds that belong to sin. We say, I am no longer a child of Satan. I am not under the power of sin. I'm going to put these things to death. And we are to put on, as we saw in the recent series on vices, the virtues. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul gives us a list. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Let me read to you what he writes. In Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. The act of putting to death or putting off those things which belong to sin and putting on those things which belong to God, we call sanctification. To sanctify, to make holy. And while this may be a discouraging project, because there are times when it seems that sin is so active in our lives, actively and aggressively working in us, so that we must struggle, we must wrestle, strive, and repent time and time again, that is sanctification. But the moment a believer dies, the struggle is over. The moment a believer dies, God makes that person's soul morally perfect. And from that moment on, in God's amazing grace, that person will never sin again. That believer will never again have to confess, will never have coldness of heart to be ashamed of, will never have unholy desire to struggle with. Instead, they will be given with and filled with all the graces and moral perfection of the Lord Jesus. When a Christian dies, their soul is torn from their body, but their soul is made morally perfect. It is perfect. He or she is instantly glorified, conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. No wonder we read in Scripture, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You may remember in our text that Paul speaks of the dead in Christ. But remember that death has violently ripped the soul from the body. It is only the soul that is glorified at death. The body experiences decay. Either the body is cremated or it is buried and it, it breaks down. At the resurrection, the body will then be glorified. And it will be reunited with the soul which has already been glorified and will be brought together. And we will be glorified in moral perfection. When a loved one is taken from us by death, we experience a real sense of loss, and rightly so. But let me ask you, should we not consider what they have gained? That person that has been taken from us will never sin again. They have been given sinless perfection. They will never again struggle against sin as we do in this life. They will have been made perfect. But there's more. The second thing that happens 
when we die and are in that intermediate state is that we enter into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two passages in the New Testament that point to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would rather to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You will, by the way, take note that Paul uses the plural we, not I. What he describes is not just for apostles or super duper Christians. This is for all of God's people. And the message is clear in the words of the the King James. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Another familiar passage that speaks of this is in Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul is describing to Philippians, a congregation with whom he felt a real closeness. By the way, the only church from whom he would accept financial support. He wouldn't from anyone else but the Philippians. He faces a dilemma. He wants to die. He desires to depart and to be with Christ. Yet he recognizes that they need him. They need his ministry to continue, his apostolic and pastoral ministry. And so he concludes it is more necessary for you that he remain in the body. But something becomes clear here as Paul's talking about this struggle, this dilemma that he faces. First of all, Paul did not view the intermediate state, as we've been calling it, as a, some type of soul sleep or a spiritual coma that would last until the, the time of resurrection, that somehow you die and that's it. You're, it's like you're under general anesthesia and then when Jesus comes back, then you're awakened. And the second thing is, it is clear that he did not see death as inter, or ushering in the final state. He wasn't saying when you die, you go to heaven. That is something I believe happens when Jesus will return and he will take us to be with him. Later in the same letter, Paul would write, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Paul is very clear that there is something that happens with our souls when we die, but when Jesus returns, that same thing will happen to our bodies. Our bodies will be glorified as well. The glorification of our body comes at the resurrection, the glorification of our souls at our death. What Paul means by all this is that if he were to die, he would be fully conscious and in the presence of Jesus Christ. This is the gain he speaks of that he would gain by dying and being in the presence of Christ. Uh, This is an important thing for us uh, to consider, particularly in light of the first thing. I said earlier that when when a believer dies, he or she is instantly glorified, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But you may have been wondering, yes, but is that person aware? I mean, they might be made perfect, but if they're in a coma, if they're sleeping, if they're waiting for the resurrection... What's the big deal? No, that person is fully conscious. They are morally perfect. They are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And based on these two passages from Second Corinthians and from Philippians, we have a right and a duty to believe and confidently expect that those who die in the Lord are fully conscious of their existence and they are immediately ushered into the very presence of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And that doesn't mean in a comatose state. That doesn't mean you're unconscious. It means to be alive and well in the presence of the Lord Jesus, to be glorified. And we can and we should rejoice through our tears that those that we have lost, their death is, has in fact been gain. And their gain is being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. In John 17, we have what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It was prayed, uh, we believe, the night before his crucifixion. Near the end of the prayer, we read, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you have loved me before the creation of the world. What does this mean? Well, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a London pastor of the 19th century, wrote about this. Death smites the goodliest of our friends. The most generous, the most prayerful, the most holy, the most devoted must die. And why? It is through Jesus' prevailing prayer. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. It is that which bears them on eagles' wings to heaven. Every time a believer mounts from earth to paradise, it is an answer to Christ's prayer. Spurgeon goes on to argue that, in fact, when we pray for a loved one not to be taken from us, we are sort of going against the prayer that Jesus had, that he wants his loved ones to be with him. I don't know if I would go that far, but I would say that when a child of God dies, he or she gains moral perfection and they are entered into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They are conscious. They are aware. They are without sin. And they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus. So we're looking at the matter of Christian grieving. And I think that most of us would agree that when we grieve the loss of a loved one, the sorrow we experience is really for us. It's our sense of loss. They're gone. They've been taken from us. And so we grieve. Uh, we mourn. They've been taken from us. But I think you would also agree that there's a sense of loss that the loved one will not experience certain things. My sister was taken went to be with the Lord last September 5th. She has five grandchildren, and one of the aspects of grieving is that she will not get to see them grow up. She won't get to see them graduate from high school or see them get married. Many other things. And so sometimes our grieving is the things that they're going to miss out on, that they will not get to experience because they've been taken away. There is something to that. And I don't think it's inappropriate that we grieve about such things. But I would suggest to you that we should perhaps focus our thinking more on what they have gained than what they are losing, what they will not experience. You know, when a loved one has struggled with bad health, 
and has suffered for a long time with bad health, we seem more likely to be able to let them go. We tell ourselves they're better off. No more suffering. But should we not consider the fact that those who die in the Lord are far better off? Because they are no longer struggling with remaining sin, the wrestling, the striving. And they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus. There is a tendency when someone dies for us to um, not be realistic sometimes in our, in our thoughts of them. We, we tend to elevate them. Um, but if we would be honest, we know that they, in fact, were sinners. And they struggled with various things, various sins. And if they didn't struggle, maybe they should have a bit more. But the reality is, now that they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus, they are perfect. They no longer struggle with sin. And as much as we are bereft because they've been taken from us, the reality is they're better off. And as much as we may not look forward to the day of our death, the reality is at the moment of death, in that instant, we are ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus and we are made perfect. Paul told the Thessalonians, encourage one another with these words. By God's grace, that's what I hope to do with you. Yes, we grieve. Paul never says we should not grieve. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But let us remember what these people have gained. Moral perfection, they are glorified now, and they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And unless the Lord Jesus returns in our lifetime, the same will happen to us. Let us grieve, not as those who do not have hope, but as those who have hope. Let's pray together. Father, death is the last enemy. It is that thing oftentimes we fear most in life. Sometimes it's the thing we hate the most because of what it has taken from us. When I think of people in this congregation who have been taken from us, Bob King, Alicia Brown, Zaldi, Claudette, others. Even now, there is sorrow. But help us to see by your grace that they are far better off. They are now glorified, waiting for the day of resurrection. And they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And in our grieving, in our thinking of them, may we do it to the glory of God. May we not be overwhelmed, overcome by our emotions. 
I think to some degree we will be, but by your grace, may we not sin in this. May we direct our thoughts, focus our thoughts on these things and be comforted by your Spirit to know that they are with the Lord Jesus and they are without sin. Certainly something I think we look forward to, being without sin, the struggle, the wrestling, the seemingly endless defeats. One day we will be without sin. May we encourage one another with these words, even in our grieving. May we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Thank you, our Father, for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.